Hello, listeners. Welcome to A Writer's World. This is Sean Griffin, a poet and writer who hopes to share some part of that world with you here on KWNK. It's a big subject, and we'll see where it leads. Today's program is entitled, Going Back to Carolyn Kaiser's House. Longtime listeners will know I have a deep affection for the late poet Carolyn Kaiser. When I knew almost nothing about poetry, she stepped in and read from my early work as if it were a privilege, not knowing, or maybe she did know, how much it meant to me. When my wife was in grad school, she came to our house and read every word of my first manuscript so that I might find a way forward. Months before that, she arrived at our married student housing door to announce, I've just won the Pulitzer. This will be the last reading I give for $100, she joked, and had a glass of wine with us and went on to read that night as if it were any other day. I'm 60, Sean. This isn't going to change who I am. And it didn't. She was always Carolyn, as smart and feisty and witty a poet as I have known. And a feminist feminist. After raising three kids on her own, studying with Rethke, Kunitz, Wagoner, and Hugo, among others, she became a defining poet of her time. It is hard to imagine what that means today, but from 1959 to 65, she founded and edited Poetry Northwest, was a fellow of the Chinese government at Columbia, and later lived in China for a year, translating multiple Chinese poets, a State Department poet-in-residence in Pakistan, and from 1966 to 70, she was the first literature director for the newly formed National Endowment for the Arts. These moments may seem like natural steps for a poet. For a female poet, they were groundbreaking. Remember, Adrian Rich and Denise Levertov were her nascent peers. They were carving new ground. The old ground meant following in the footsteps of Dickinson and so many other women who wrote but could not be found in the canon. I first met Kaiser when she came to read in northern Nevada in the early 1980s. By then, she had published three books and was already reckoning with the poetry establishment. I can hear her now. A good old boys club, Sean. To which I asked, why? She laughed her incredulous laugh. Oh, dear man, you have so much to learn. And that's how it went with Carolyn. You got schooled, and when you awoke from her trance, you knew something had changed. You were grateful for the shaman that was inside her. She could hold court in a truck stop, give a reading from memory on a subway, or quote tufu over wine while you looked on, not sure if there is still more to come. When I left her at the airport after that first Northern Nevada reading, having known her for less than two days, she handed me a black sketch notebook with poems typed and taped to its pages. The plane was delayed. She looked at me and said, would you read these? I don't know if this book is any good. I can't find anyone to take it. I'm beginning to think they, the poems, are not good enough. That was the book that won the Pulitzer two years later. And then I knew. This is how it is with poetry. So very capricious. Just two years prior, no one would touch the book. It was a lesson I would remember all my life. When you go down the road of poetry, it can never be to publish. It must be for the sake of art. It must be because you love it. The rest is really noise. Over the next 15 years, I saw her at Pals every August when the annual journal Calipuya Collage came out and my dear friend Tom Forte, its late editor, stood on the stage and traded jabs and poems and one-liners with Kaiser. Those were heady days. 
For a while, it seemed she could find no purchase too grand, and then a decade later, I got the call. She has Alzheimer's. My wife and I drove to the big white house in Sonoma where she and her late husband, John Woodbridge, lived. The walls were stacked floor to ceiling with poetry books. When we visited, her son Fred went and got the book that she read line by line from the shelves. This is Sean's first book that he gave to you. Do you remember it? Fred asked as he handed it to her. And I don't know if she did. She looked at it, uncertain if it was mine or anyone's. She still derived a lot of pleasure from reading the Times book review and I think enjoyed herself as best she could. I walked into the living room where those stacks loomed over every window and door. How could she keep track of all those poets, those hundreds and hundreds of lives? And I recalled sitting on that same couch in Sonoma when she read line by line from my second manuscript. And how stunned I was that she still wanted to read the poems. I still didn't understand the currency being traded. It wasn't poetry per se. It was closer to living in a moment without distraction, being completely suffused with the high tension of the art form. And her attention, her uncanny focus on word, image, sound, context, history, political reference, all these other nuances that shape a poem, they were floating about us. They were living between us. We were sharing them. Even though we had no name for their exchange, we knew it was crucial conversation. I would take these words with me and plunge into the drafts when I returned home. I would listen again as the quiet tendrils of her knowledge spread to mine and slowly grew to become my words. This is how the art form passes hands. How the rituals of living in language are learned. You can't fake this. It is given or not. It is shared or not. And if you are lucky enough to hear a master, listen. Listen as they unfold the spools of their thread. They will enchant. For every Kaiser story like mine, there are a hundred more. She literally enchanted wherever she went, and her followers were legion, not to mention most every major poet from the second half of the 20th century. That is why when I drove up to her big white house in Sonoma last week, it was a sense of, with a sense of awe and loss. This was the place where she lived, where she sifted from the eucalyptus light outside to make her art, and where I last saw her in her kitchen, her nurse attending to lunch, and son and husband trying to help with the many requests. The house had changed. Someone bought it with money. It had a beautifully landscaped entrance and an entire side yard filled with grapevines. I imagined it was someone who knew how lucky they were to be in this place where she had lived. But maybe not. Maybe they just wanted a house to renovate in Sonoma. And I hope the books went to a library. Most were first editions signed by her, signed by her peers, almost all of whom are gone now. There is a curious circle to this path poets follow. We start with nothing, only to learn we end there. Not unlike so many of the Chinese poets she translated. We follow the path of lying before an art form that is so much greater than each of us. We learn to speak its first truth, ignorance, and start to remake what we do not know. By the time the ash of age comes to settle, we only want to give our art away. I remember Donald Hall writing to say he worried no one would read him after he was gone. 
I'm sure Carolyn Kaiser wondered who would read her when she started to notice the slipping of mind and heart. Just as the house has changed, we, her readers, have changed. And today, while feminism may seem expected, it is still under threat, but her words remain. She has left us an example of a woman who would not divine the old white men without the presence of her art. There were hundreds of female poets who made this arc to today a reality, but she, like Rich and Levertov, made it one we understand, we believe to be necessary, we want in the chemistry of our words. The house is no longer hers. The books are scattered. I received many pictures from her son after she died. They only made me cry because it was in life that she was so present ever mindful of the way we take art into our lives and shape the sound of what we must live. I want to close today with a poem by Carolyn Kaiser from The Nearness of You, reprinted here with permission of Copper Canyon Press, 1996. It is entitled Thrall. The room is sparsely furnished, a chair, a table, and a father. He sits in the chair by the window. There are books on the table. The time is always just past lunch. You tiptoe past as he eats his apple and reads. He looks up, angry. He has heard your asthmatic breathing. He will read for years without looking up until your childhood is over. Smells, untidiness, and boring questions. Blood from the first skinned knees to the first stained thighs the foolish years of adolescent love. One day he looks up, pleased at the finished product. Now he is ready to love you. So he coaxes you in the voice reserved for reading Keats. You agree to everything. Drilled in silence and duty, you will give him no cause for reproach. He will boast of you to strangers. When the afternoon is older, shadows in a smaller room fall on the bed the books, the father. You read aloud to him, La Belle Dame sans merci. You feed him his medicine. You tell him you love him. You wait for his eyes to close at last, so you may write this poem. This concludes our program, Going Back to Carolyn Kaiser's House. Please join us in the Collective Ethersphere on the first and third Sundays at 5 p.m. for our next Meditation on Words, or stream it at kwnkradio.org. And please support your local independent bookstore. In Reno, that's Sundance Books and Music, and in Las Vegas, that's the Writer's Block. They're open and we need them. Thank you, be safe, and spread a little kindness wherever you are. Finally, to our friends in the Ukraine, do not give up hope. The globe is with you now and in the days ahead. P.S. This past Tuesday was Giving Tuesday. If you like what you hear, please go to kwnkradio.org and donate to keep the station on the air.